Two and a Half Admins, episode 85. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, your customary blog post, Alan, has it got something to do with OpenZFS for a change? Yeah, and uh, it's written by Jim. So it's uh, how to tune your OpenZFS record size. So go check it out. All right, well, link in the show notes as usual. I found quite an interesting article on the register called How Captures Can Cloak Phishing URLs in Emails. And this is from a report from the security firm Avanon. And the, the crux of it is this. The dodgy people send you the speculative phishing emails. You click the link, and then you're faced with a capture first to get to the actual phishing page. And not only does that inspire confidence in most people because they've been trained that capture equals security, but it also means that automated scanning can't actually get to the phishing page to flag it up because they hit the capture page, can't solve it, and then just error out. And the particular attack they're talking about uh, took a step further, actually. So back in uh, February, Venom researchers started to see crooks uh, using this technique, but they also used it in conjunction with the compromised domain of a real university. So suddenly now you're getting a capture page and ending up at a page where it's actually something edu. And so you're like, oh, this page is probably fine. And then you're bringing your defenses down. And kind of like Joe said, we've kind of trained people that captures are an expected thing. And it's true that I think most people, when unexpectedly presented with a captcha, would just solve it and then and go on and not realize that, you know, why was I getting that? I'm not sure that this is that big a deal, ultimately. It's a clever trick. Yeah, some users might be further lulled into a sense of false security by the CAPTCHA, but let's face it, an inordinate percentage of users that click the shiny link are absolutely going to put their name and their password and their wife's birthday and everything else they can think of that they're requested to anyway, and you can't stop them. So I, I don't I don't know how huge a value it is to theoretically give some users more of a false sense of security with the CAPTCHA they have to get through. I have a feeling that you're going to lose more of your targets because they don't want to do the CAPTCHA than you are get them because they feel more secure with it. Um, it's going to be a fairly minor effect either way. The same thing with the automated scanners. I mean, yes, you can absolutely use the CAPTCHA to hide bad stuff from automated tools because ultimately a scanner is not really much of any different than the bots that CAPTCHAs were supposed to be keeping out in the first place. Either way, the idea is you have a problem that's expensive to solve with machines and cheap to solve with humans, right? But most modern malware engines, they're not really scanning pages for content anyway. What they're doing is they're relying on a combination of, you know, humans reporting, hey, this link went somewhere bad, and also just using neural networks to analyze traffic patterns and say, hey, all of a sudden, you know, 5 million people went to this site that was, you know, wasn't a thing yesterday. This looks bad. Let's investigate that. Let's flag that as a possible problem. And the CAPTCHA's not really going to change that much, I don't think. Yeah, and it looks like they're also possibly combining this with some other techniques that do accomplish the same thing in maybe less technical ways. Like, oh, the email has a PDF attachment and the PDF tells you to go to the website. Uh, it's something that, you know, the scanner might not know to do. Or, you know, the PDF is protected by a password and the password is communicated to you in an indirect way in the email message so the user types the password into the pdf and opens it but the scanner doesn't 
and a bunch of techniques like this. <laughs> it's like, how many layers are they really trying to go through here? If they're sending you an email with a PDF and the PDF tells you go to this website and solve the capture and then go through to do and eventually fill out some information, apparently all predicated on you trying to open this fax you were sent because it's the 1990s and you're getting a fax. The fun thing about that is the PDF attachment to the email has been a favorite spammer trick for so long now. But the only thing that really seems to change is how they use the PDF. You know, it used to be that the PDF was going to absolutely exploit a a vulnerability in your Adobe PDF viewer. And, you know, that was going to, you know, cause you the problems. Now, usually it's a perfectly legitimate PDF. They just have a link buried in the PDF to make it more difficult for the scanners to see there's a potentially dodgy link. Either way, the PDF and the email maybe don't go through, you know, enormous hoops to open it. The worst problem, like Alan said, is that, you know, because now most of the scanners can automatically open PDFs and more and more of the big ones will even do, you know, image analysis. So like if the PDF actually has a scanned JPEG where somebody hand wrote the URL, a lot of the times the OCR will read that stuff now. So they do the password thing where you have to type in the password to open the thing. And, you know, your scanner doesn't know how to do the password to open the PDF and yada, yada, yada. Ultimately, you know, this is all a game you're having to balance. Okay, how many idiots am I going to lose because they couldn't get through the steps that I put in front of them versus how many scanners will I avoid because I put the extra steps there? Well, yeah, especially like depending on your the point of your phishing campaign, a lot of times you're purposely taking the steps to weed out anybody smart enough not to fall for it. And so you don't want too many steps because you're you're trying to only target the really dumb people. and then. You know, you get to the point where it's like, how motivated do you think people are to give you their information? It turns out maybe more than we would hope. Surprisingly motivated. I unfortunately can confirm that the number of users out there who will go through hoops to type in an obfuscated password to a zip from somebody they'd never heard before that sends them a misspelled message that says that, you know, UPS has a package for you. Oh, God, there's there's millions of them. Millions. Yeah. But I think the worst part of all this is that when you get literally like legit messages from a bank being like, you have to go to our website and log in to see the message, which I understand email is not secure. They want to do that. But like, how are you, how are, you know, regular people, neurotypical supposed to differentiate this from the bad thing? Well, they're supposed to never click the freaking link and instead say, oh, okay. My bank is Bank of America, and they said I need to go log in, so I will minimize this window and go open a browser and type in bankofamerica.com and log in there. That's what you're supposed to do. But this was a customer is trying to send us a wire transfer, and their bank is like, you have to access our secure document thing from like a bank that's not even in our country. And it's just like, wow, uh, yeah, <laughs> you were right to ask me to take a look at it and make sure that was legit from the real bank and not scammers because it's just bad the things that we train people to do uh, and to accept and you know it's the it's the hardest part of doing any kind of security based user experience and user interface design is like we saw with was the windows uac and stuff if you pop people up every time they try to open an application be like do you want to let this application happen they get so used to just hitting yes all the time that they don't even notice when one happened because without them clicking on something and they just approved the malware and what was the point of all that let's do some feedback mike wrote to us in episode 82 jim kept saying roskomnadzor as a name of a large russian isp but that's the wrong name 
Roscomnet is the name of the communications regulation agency, kind of like the FCC in the US. Though obviously, given the time and place, it's mainly known for censorship and upholding crazy propaganda levels here. What Jim meant to say is likely Rostelecom, the largest and fully government-controlled ISP here, created out of old USSR telephony infrastructure and monopoly. I can see how it might be easy to confuse the two given the similar prefix, and that Jim has probably seen Roskomnadzor in more articles about internet control recently than the ISP thing. He mentioned it quite a few times in the episode, though, so it really stands out to someone who knows what both things are, unfortunately. Yeah, Mike's correct. I meant uh, Rus Telecom, and I kept saying Roskomnadzor. I realized that after we'd finished recording... Mike's almost correct about the issue being that I've seen more articles on the internet about Roskomnadzor. The issue is actually that I wrote several articles about Roskomnadzor, <laughs> so I had that name stuck in my head. Well, thanks for the correction, Mike. Much appreciated. Jim, you seem to have something to get off your chest. Your kid's school is giving them Bitcoin propaganda. Yeah, they really are. I was pretty shocked when my wife told me this morning that uh, my son had had a new textbook called Money, 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 and it opened with a timeline that the section for the timeline, as well as the timeline itself, is literally titled From Barter to Bitcoin. And the the book, which is yeah, 50 hefty pages long, uh, closes with the future of money, which it claims, again, is Bitcoin. I don't think that the authors of the book were deliberately being crypto bros. Uh, you know, it's it's always hard to tell with this kind of thing, but the read that I get is just that they really don't know anything about this stuff. They probably thought that, you know, interviewing a few people who were prominent within the cryptocurrency industry and taking what they said largely at face value was a responsible way to teach children. But I, I think the absolute horror of this book gets summed up the best in the the final section, you know, the future of money, where it says pros and cons of cryptocurrency. It's an attempt at the same idea of fair and balanced reporting, you know, like the, you, you hear from the Fox News or whatever. But everything it lists as a pro of cryptocurrency is actually entirely wrong. It should be in the con side. And in the con side, they fail ever so much as to mention not only in this list, but anywhere in this book, they fail to mention the energy consumption of cryptocurrency. Uh, they don't mention it at all. They don't list it as a con. Let me go ahead and, and, and read you the, th the three pros that they have in this table for the pros and cons of cryptocurrency. Pro, digital cash is actually safer than real currency. It's fraud proof. <laughs> I, I don't know. Do we do we really even need to break that one down? I mean, <laughs> if you spend any time on Twitter, it's just it's a constant barrage of, oh, no, my apes are gone. Come on, man. I'm assuming they mean it's counterfeit proof. They get into that later. And okay. I mean, that's that's not really even entirely true either. Um, let's go ahead and move on from safer than real currency. It's fraud proof. Uh <laughs> Yes, you can absolutely be defrauded when you're using cryptocurrency. Uh, credit cards can be forged and stolen, but not cryptocurrency. There's never been an incident of identity theft with digital cash. <laughs> what does identity theft have to do with the cash part anyway? Like the, the whole sentence is just a non sequitur. You can absolutely get your Coinbase account hacked or stolen. You can absolutely be the victim of somebody trying to pass themselves off as the wallet inspector. That goes around constantly. Um, 
as far as identity theft, I mean, who uses Bitcoin to verify their identity to somebody in the first place? It, it's, it's bizarre. Moving on, our third and final pro for cryptocurrency. Since no approvals are needed with digital currency, it's quick and convenient. That's not how cryptocurrency works, specifically Bitcoin. No, it's not how cryptocurrency works at all. So for those of you who aren't intimately familiar with this garbage, uh, the way that it actually works, and this is basically the same whether you're talking about Bitcoin or Ethereum or what have you, every transaction has to be verified. And when you hear people talk about mining for cryptocurrency, what the mining is really doing largely is it's validating transactions on the blockchain as they occur. This gets even weirder because this book never even so much as mentions Ethereum. I mean, there's Bitcoin logos scattered throughout. Pretty much everything they talk about is Bitcoin. Now, in reality, at the time that this book was published in May of 2021, the average time to validate a Bitcoin transaction was two and a half days. So... I don't know about the whole no approvals are needed and it's quick and convenient. Now, Ethereum, which again, they never even mentioned, but I'm going to mention it because I know a lot of our listeners are going to get, you know, hit up with crypto bros talking about how great everything is now and all the problems are solved. Yes, Ethereum does tend to validate transactions more quickly than Bitcoin did and does. The average time to validate the next block on the Ethereum blockchain is only about 15 seconds. But that doesn't tell you the whole story. The whole story is it's usually going to take you anywhere from 15 minutes to sometimes as much as a day or more to validate your transaction on the Ethereum blockchain because your transaction is almost certainly not going to be in the very next block to get validated. In order to try to get your transaction processed more quickly, you can pay extra money for what they call the gas fee. Now, the more you pay in gas, the higher that moves your transaction in the list of blocks to be validated so that you get your results back more quickly. Now, this is as much bug as it is feature because when you've got whales, people who own tremendous amounts of this stuff, sometimes they get into what you call gas wars where they pay incredible amounts of money to get all of their transactions moved all the way up to the front one very common reason for that might be that they're not very legitimate transactions in the first place. You know, it's money laundering or it's stuff stolen from an exchange or stolen from people's wallets, or it's a rug pull from some NFT scheme. And they want to get those transactions done fast to get their money out. And they'll pay thousands and thousands of dollars to get a high volume of transactions to the front. And as a result, if you're not willing to pay the same amount now, instead of waiting 15 minutes for your transaction to go through, you might be waiting hours. You might be waiting a couple of days. Now, again, this is bad enough when we're talking about cryptocurrency as a speculative investment, but that's not what this book is doing. This book is talking about currency. It's saying this is quicker and more convenient than cash. Now, when's the last time you went in the gas station and had to wait two and a half hours for the clerk to run the little, you know, uh, highlighter over your, your bill to make sure it wasn't counterfeit? No, nobody's putting up with that. That's not how it works. You hand them your cash, you leave. You swipe your visa, you leave. All right. So that's all the pros that we have listed. Every one of them is garbage. Every one of them should be in the con list. Let's talk about the exactly the same number of cons or on the con side. We have three. There is no regulation of digital currency. This means there are no official rules used by the government about buying and selling with digital currency. Now, this is very true, and it is absolutely a con. The part that bothers me is they don't expand what that means, which basically boils down to if you do get defrauded 
and you very likely will, that's it. Nobody's going to help you get your money back or your monkey JPEG or whatever. It's just gone. You got rooked. It's over. That's the same with cash, though. Someone takes your cash from you, you've got no recourse generally. Not necessarily. Now, that is frequently the case, but if your cash transaction was not shady in the first place, it's not that hard to get the law on your side. If you can demonstrate that, you know, yes, you actually did pay $500 in cash for, I, I don't know, a, you know, a few bushels of vegetables at the farmer's market and there's dispute about it. Like there's an entire infrastructure set up that doesn't just go, no, you paid cash. So screw you. You know, you're out your money. That's not how normal money and normal transactions work. But good luck getting the police interested if what you're trying to tell them is, hey, look, I paid 30 Ethereum for this monkey JPEG and it's gone now. Moving on. Con. The value of cryptocurrency changes often and depends on demand. For example, if a lot of Bitcoin is available, its value goes down. If only a little Bitcoin is available, its value goes up. End of con. Again, this is true, but it really doesn't go into just the incredible volatility of this stuff. It does not behave as a currency. It does not even behave as a stable investment. It behaves like a penny stock. Uh, the value of your Bitcoin holdings can easily double or quadruple in a day or fall to half or a quarter of what they were. There's not much predicting it. I can't overstate the volatility of this as an investment. And that's even as an investment, even as a risky investment, it's insanely volatile. As currency, it's a no-go. Uh, you're not going to wake up tomorrow and, you know, your your dollar that you hold in your hand is worth a quarter of what it was the day before. That's worse even than Russia's currency has been tanking since they decided to invade Ukraine. It's insane. So our third con, this is the final con in our list. Digital currency cannot be used to pay for more common purchases from a wide variety of businesses, which again, absolutely true, but it would be great if we talked about the actual reasons why, all of which they have listed over on the pro side. And of course, what we did not mention as a con in this table or anywhere in this freaking book at all is the incredible energy consumption involved in this cryptocurrency. Now, again, this book is pushing Bitcoin specifically. Uh, it never even mentions Ethereum. It does allude to the fact that there are other types of coins out there, but the only thing it actually talks about is Bitcoin. I'm going to go ahead and bypass Bitcoin, and I'm going to talk about the energy consumption of Ethereum, because the first thing that the modern crypto bros want to do is talk about how everything's fine now. Yes, Bitcoin was wasteful, but Ethereum is not, and it's great. So this is the the newer, greener, more climate-conscious coin that we're talking about now, Ethereum. The amount of energy that it requires to process a single Ethereum transaction, just one, is about one and a half times as much energy as it takes to process 100,000 Visa transactions. And the book just does not even mention that at all. Now, this is a fifth grade uh, kind of specialty textbook. You know, it's, it's not like an all-year textbook. It's more of a like, you know, this is one section that they're talking about. But even at the fifth grade level, this is just, it's incredibly bad. It's irresponsible. And whether it intended to or not, you know, the, the net effect is it's shifting the Overton window. It's, it's planting, you know, these seeds in people's heads that, okay, so I hear people talk about how bad crypto is, but like, oh, that was before and it's not so bad. And this book is showing me the pros and the cons. So it's fine. Yes. As you said earlier, Joe, I'm mad. I'm real freaking mad about it. 
and rightfully so. But the other thing I think is just, if your job is to make a textbook, do you not somewhat consider how the textbook is going to age? Because I can just imagine coming back to this in a couple of years, and this is going to be even more hilarious. Before we move on from this, I want to go ahead and, and name and shame the actual company that put this monstrosity out, because it, it's not some tiny little bit player that you've never heard of. Uh, the company is called Stride. Before it was named Stride, it was called K-12. It is the largest provider of textbooks to uh, charter and private schools in the entire country. This is not like some weird fly-by-night, like Christian fundamentalist thing that's only supposed to go to like the super holy rollers, you know, with the textbooks that say we don't know why electricity works. That's not what this is. This is incredibly mainstream. This is a company that, uh, you know, the, the top 10 shareholders of this publicly traded company, they all have hundreds of millions of dollars of equity in it. And, you know, it's, it's mostly enormous mutual funds. You know, like Vanguard is the number one shareholder of Stride. Um, you have several other big mutual funds beyond that. Pretty much everything on there is, you know, big name Wall Street. That's who owns this company. The actual contributors to the book, it, it's an incredibly small team. Uh, on the back of the, the book, it lists them by name. And there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, nine total people, apparently, were responsible for this book as either staff or contributor. Uh, the first listed is Director of English Language Arts, which I'm not sure why we needed that in a money textbook, but okay. Uh, the next is Instructional Design. Then we have Senior Media Editor. Finally, now we get to Mary Beck Desmond, who is the Senior Text Editor. But again, it sounds like we're talking about a copy editor here. Uh, then we have a Creative Design Manager. Then we have a Print Visual Designer and Cover Design. Then we have a Print Visual Designer. And finally, for writers, there's three people, Deborah Benton, Kevin Cantera, and Marjorie Frank. I don't so much as see a doctor listed in front of any of those three people's names. Uh, it seems pretty clear to me that none of these people are competent to write a textbook, even at the fifth grade level, about money, let alone about this speculative supposed future money that they have no idea about whatsoever and didn't competently research either. It's just incredibly irresponsible. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A to get started with $100 free credit. From their award-winning support offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and more. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com 25A, create a free account with your Google or GitHub account, or your email address, and you'll get $100 in credit. That's linode.com 25A. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can go to 2.5admins.com support to learn more about it. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send in your feedback or your questions for Jim and Alan, you can email show at 2.5admins.com.
Peter writes, I have a 5 megabits per second Ether channel service, of which I'm using 224 kilobits of UDP traffic. I monitor this data stream closely and have demonstrated that I'm only using 224 kilobits per second. And due to the rate limiting I've applied to the port, I cannot exceed 5 megabits per second even when I flood the circuit with data. Nevertheless, I consistently lose packets. I can see the packets go into the pipe, but they don't come out the other side. The service provider claims that I need to implement traffic shaping, but I don't agree. Why would I need to shape 224 kilobits per second of data inside a 5 megabits per second pipe? Am I missing something? You don't need to shape it, and you're not missing something. Uh, Your ISP is just saying what they have to say to get you off the phone when it comes down to it. Um, Now, just because you're not exceeding 5 megabits doesn't mean that you can't possibly have a burst of traffic that's too wide for the pipe to handle because the second is not really a magical unit of time. But with that said, if you're only using 224 kilobits out of a 5 megabit pipe, the odds that you've got, you know, like the tenth of a second burst that's too hot, you know, for it to handle, that's just going to be garbage. I think a lot of what this comes down to is I've frequently seen ISPs not prioritize UDP traffic. Um, they'll they'll drop it more quickly than they will other traffic to more well-known ports. You didn't say what this UDP was, but based on the fact that you didn't say, I have a feeling it's probably something kind of oddball that's specific to your application. And when ISPs do their own traffic shaping, they very frequently prioritize the things that they know about that they'll get the most phone calls about and they start dropping the things that they don't recognize the most quickly. I have a feeling that's probably what's happening there. I kind of just assumed probably naively that there was something voice, like IP telephone or something. In particular, in part of it, he mentions he has some rate limiting he's already applied himself. And I'm just wondering how he set that up. Because in general, once you do rate limiting, the way the rate limiting works is by dropping packets when you exceed the rate limit. And then, you know, if it's TCP, that causes TCP to slow down to the rate that can get through. And if it's UDP, it means you just throw away some of the packets and they just don't get to the other side. That is a very good point. Yeah. And when you say you see packets go into the pipe, is that at the software level before the rate limiting? Or are you actually like you seeing TCP dump and actually uh, like mirroring the port on a switch or something and seeing it after it's left the machine uh, as it's headed to the ISP and making sure it's it's not dropped before it's actually going on the wire? But some of that's just terminology. But yeah, it seems odd that like if, if you're trying to send 224 kilobits and it's not getting through on your five megabit service, that's pretty bad. But yeah, there's some questions about how you're doing the current rate limiting and and maybe a little bit of what the traffic is, but maybe you can't say. And also, like, are you seeing the packet loss in the 224 kilobits you're trying to do or just the other traffic you're trying to also send down that same five megabit channel? That's a good point. I just kind of assumed that the entire channel was only used for the 224 kilobits of UDP, but that's actually ambiguous in the question. So it's, it's possible, Peter, that your ISP is just being that bad, but there are quite a few questions as well. If you have access to another machine reasonably on the other end of that connection, using a tool like iPerf uh, and comparing both TCP and UDP and just seeing what it says might be interesting. I will say that if my initial assumption was correct and the 224 kilobits of UDP is the only traffic on this 5 megabit pipe, nobody's traffic shaping, including whatever you applied locally, should be having any impact on that because you're just you're not going to accumulate enough of it to have packets dropped. Uh, with that said, I, I do want to reiterate Alan's point, which is that traffic shaping on UDP 
means dropping packets and they're just going to be dropped because it's UDP. There's no delivery. There's, there's no delivery guarantee. There will be no retry. They're gone. You have to handle that at the application level. In theory, you could be doing, you know, a, a buffering and trickling to, to shape UDP traffic without dropping packets. And practice, that's not something that you're going to see because the reason you're using UDP in the first place is usually that you want the lowest possible latency. So trying to buffer and then trickle out your traffic to, to meet a shaping guideline is usually going to be the exact opposite of what you really wanted with your UDP application anyway. The fact that the service is only 5 megabits suggests that it's some kind of special setup or you're trying to do like a point-to-point link and it's just 224 kilobits of really important traffic and it has to get there. And, you know, you would expect that that's the reason why this probably expensive service that's only 5 megabits exists and it's not doing it. So, yeah, uh, like I said, def- definitely things to check is the, the rate limiting. And if you can do something like a, a mirrored port on a switch to actually be able to, you know, TCB dump off your laptop or something off the, the mirror of the traffic and make sure the, the traffic's actually leaving the machine correctly, that can help you eliminate a bunch of possible causes, whether it's, you know, your software rate limiting or whatever else you're doing. Also, if you're using the switch to do the rate limiting, I just noticed you said rate limit applied to the port. The switch is doing the rate limiting. It's probably just doing a really bad job of it, and you might consider looking at other ways to do the rate limiting. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send any feedback or questions. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.